John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ashani. Good worshiping together. Honestly, I didn't want it to stop. Um, I'm Pastor Nate. I'm lead pastor here at Brandywine. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 1 for our Advent season. So you can turn with me in the Bible to John chapter 1. I'm going to pray one more time as we uh, focus on the word of God today. Lord, may your word shine forth today. May we see your word in new light today. Speak to us into our hearts and the places in our minds that we, we often might not want to let you access to. That today we would soak in the truth from the word of God that it would speak to us with authority and power. Use me as a mouthpiece for that today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in John chapter one. You can turn there in your Bible. You just heard Ashani read uh, the verses, verse one through five. Now the title of our Advent series, as you see on the screen, is Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead See. Now that should sound, if you grew up in church, if you've been to lots of Advent and Christmas Eve services, that should sound really familiar. Say, where have I heard that before? Where have you heard it? Anybody know? What's the, what's the, what's the carol? Hark the herald angels sing. That's right. You get a gold star, whoever said that today. Um, yes, it comes from that 18th century Christmas carol written by the heroes of the Great Awakening, Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. And the stanza says this, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man, with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And these powerful words penned were inspired by this very text that we're going to read today, the prologue to John's gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And I have the, uh, the marvelous privilege of, of uh, explaining it and, and camping in this text over the next uh, several weeks of Advent. And I use that term marvelous because every time I read this, this prologue, that's exactly what I do. I marvel at it. I marvel at the, at the wonders that we come to in this text, the simplicity and yet the complexity, the depth and the riches and the beauty of what it is that we're going to unpack together. So I want to encourage us uh, to, to jump in the deep end of John chapter 1 in this prologue over these next weeks. I want to encourage you to jump in with me, read it throughout the weeks of Advent, reread it, listen to it in the car, pray through it as you can get the, the depths of what John is communicating uh, for yourself as well. John's primary, go uh, uh, 
purpose or goal in the prologue is to answer one profoundly simple question, difficult to answer, but profound nonetheless. And the question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, we live in a world that has lots of answers to this question. There's a religious Jesus out there, the, the, the Jesus of different religions. You know, Jesus is a prophet or Jesus was... Um, you know, a sage or Jesus perhaps was an angel or someone who became God-like. And then there's the new age Jesus. This is sort of the Star Wars Jesus, right? This is the Jesus as a force in your life that you can use to overpower evil and, you know, just get you through a bad day. There's that Jesus. There's the political Jesus, or as one pastor likes to call him, the tweetable Jesus or the exable Jesus. I don't know what the phrase is right now with Twitter and X, but the, the, Twitter, the Twitter Jesus, the tweetable Jesus, who is just distilled into a set of quotes to be weaponized on social media to support your politician, your cause. And the list goes on and on, lots of different kinds of Jesus. But when it comes to the origin of Jesus, who Jesus is, the opinions about Jesus, instead of, my opinion, instead of entrusting Muhammad or Joseph Smith or Oprah or the Simpsons, or the Discovery Channel, I would rather go to someone who walked with Jesus as an eyewitness account. I'd rather find out from someone who observed his life up close, who was present at his crucifixion, who was present at the empty tomb, who witnessed the resurrected and ascended Jesus, the one, uh, one who gave his life for the very identity of who Jesus was, I want to listen to what that person has to say. And that is exactly who the Apostle John is. Eyewitness account of Jesus. Now, it took John at least three years to discover the true identity of who Jesus was. To take that in, John doesn't want us to go more than three verses before we figure out who Jesus is. And that's what we're going to look at today, the first three verses of John's prologue. And from these first three verses, we're going to see three essential truths about Jesus and his identity as the word. This is the term that John is gonna use and we'll discover why that is, okay? So three things. First, we're gonna look at the word as divinity. The word is divinity. Look at verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, of the gospel accounts, there's a few of them that give a genealogy of Jesus, uh, his origins. Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy back to uh, Abraham. Luke goes back further. He goes all the way back to Adam. John goes back further than both of them. John, as we see here, will go all the way back to before the very beginning of time, before the very beginning of creation, John goes all the way back. Now, hearing John start his gospel with, in the beginning was the word. If you were a Jewish reader of this, your ears would perk up and you say, in the beginning? Well, that sounds a lot like Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning was God. And that was very purposeful. That's what John wanted you to do because he's saying, John's making the point that the Christmas story goes back way before the baby in the manger, sleep in the hay, it goes all the way back to before the world began. See, Jesus, he says, existed before the creation of the world. 
Now, you might say, well, wait a second. You know, maybe John says that, but Jesus never claimed that. You know, it was his followers years later who made up all those things and sort of deified Jesus. But Jesus never intended for people to think that. And you're entitled to your opinion. The problem is your opinion's wrong on that. And I don't say that arrogantly. I say because Jesus in his own words said it. John 17, in his prayer, before he went to his trial to be crucified, what did he pray? He said in verse five, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had when? I had with you before the world began. So where did John get this idea that Jesus existed before creation? He got it from listening to Jesus. And this isn't the only place Jesus said this kind of thing. So John not only says he's, he was preexistent before the beginning. He also says, in the beginning was the word. Now, when hearing this phrase, the word, the Gentile readers and listeners, their ears would have perked up and said, ooh, the word, that's an interesting word to use. See, John was very deliberate in using this word. It was freighted with a great deal of Greek philosophy that was sort of loaded up with cargo, we might say. This is a word packed with Greek philosophy. The Greek word for word is logos. Maybe you've heard that term before, logos. Now, forgive me, I'm gonna just kind of touch on Greek philosophy a little bit, okay? So let's talk a little bit about Greek philosophy. Go to philosophy class for a moment. The Greek philosophers who shaped the Greco-Roman world of Jesus, of John, and greatly shaped the world in which we live today and have been shaping the world for millennia. These Greek philosophers believed when they, look at, they looked at the universe, when they looked at the world, they saw a rational order behind all things. They saw an order in the universe. And they believed that behind that rational order is what we might call a divine reason, a principle by which everything came to be. So here was a thought, according to Greek philosophers, that everything that exists in our world, humanity, your pet dog or cat and your fish, trees outside, mountains, the very chairs or pews that you sit in, it pre-existed in this rational force, this impersonal idea before it ever was manifested in this world. You follow me with what I'm saying? Okay. Somebody said, no. Okay, the chair that you're sitting in is just a manifestation of a pre-existent version of that chair in the mind of this impersonal rational force, okay? That's the idea of Greek philosophy. They called this divine reason the logos, the one or the thing the force that creates or is the idea behind all things that exist, the logos. And so when John dips his pen in the ink and writes, in the beginning was the logos, he is saying, hey, philosophers, you got some things right, but let me share with you the full story. Yes, there is a logos. There is a a, a divine beginner, we might say, but it's not an impersonal force. It's not some principle. It's not some idea or rationale. It is a divine person, and his name is Jesus. You see what John's doing here? Jesus, he says, is the logos. Jesus is the purpose for everything that exists. 
And he goes on to say about this logos that he's both, he, it says both was with God and was God in the beginning. Was with and was God. Now our was is always past tense, right? This was in the Greek is not a past tense word. It's a present continual word. So it's a, he always was wasing, <laughs> okay? Jesus always was, he, he's always been both then and now and will always be. That's, the, that's the, uh, the, the version of the word was here in the Greek. But he says he was, was with and was. And you say, well, that's a bit confusing. The Greek thing, that was confusing. Uh, the, how, how could I be with myself and also myself at the same time? Well, you can't, but Jesus can. <laughs> and the reason is because what John is doing here is some doctrinal work. He's affirming what has come to be known by the term Trinity. He's affirming some things about the Trinity. Now, I can't go into the depths of the Trinity. One, uh, it's above my pay grade. I don't know enough about the Trinity to really go too deep into it. But John tells us some things about the Trinity today. Firstly, he tells us here that Jesus is God. He says, the Logos was God. He's with God and he was God. He shares the same divine essence and attributes as God. John isn't alone in this. This is all throughout the, the New Testament. Hebrews 1, 3, for example, says the son, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus himself says it very simply in John ten thirty: I and the father are one. It's this very reason that the Jews picked up stones to stone him because for them, that was blasphemy. How dare you say that you and the Father are equal? This is what Jesus was claiming about himself. And so Jesus is the perfect expression of God. So when you read the Gospels, and I'd encourage you to read them over and over again, you want to know who God is? You want to know who God's, what God's characteristics are like? You want to know about his love and his holiness and his truth and his justice, his compassion? See it in God, in and revealed in Jesus Christ. He is the perfect expression of Jesus. Of God is, Jesus is the perfect expression of God. Secondly, we see in this text that Jesus was with God. Now that word with means that you are in close proximity or intimate relationship with. What John is saying with this simple word is that Jesus shares in an intimate relationship with and yet is distinct from God. And we might add God the Father. Do you see what he's saying? See, I am God and I'm with him, yet I'm distinct. This is beginning to get at this idea of the Trinity. Now, the, the spirit isn't um, talked about explicitly here. John will, as he continues his gospel, talk about the Holy Spirit. The same could be true, uh, said about him. One in essence, yet distinct from and, and in an intimate, loving relationship with each other. That is our understanding of the Trinity. He's saying, Nate, I just don't understand this whole Trinity. How can something be three and one? So I don't, I don't fully get it either. I like to, to think about talking about the Trinity like swimming in a vast ocean. 
where you can go a little bit down the surface, even with some good gear, you can go like, you know, many feet down, but it's none of us are getting all the way down. There's a lot of mystery to it. I appreciate what J.B. Phillips says. If God was small enough for me to understand, he wouldn't be big enough for me to worship. And that's exactly what I feel. But I would share one implication of this idea that in the Trinity, that they're in relationship with each other. Imagine the moments in your life that you have felt the most loved, the most cared for. Think about the moments in life when you and another person are so on the same page. You feel so secure in that relationship. You feel like the other person is so pleased with you. Now, these are temporary moments in this world. These are fleeting moments. These are imperfect moments. Even in great marriages and families, these, these moments are still imperfect. But imagine that moment for eternity, times a trillion, 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 etc. And we are beginning to scratch at the surface of the intimate, secure, loving, pleasing unity that is within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't a sermon, but it's an important aside. Through what Jesus did for us on the cross, he invites us forever into that loving relationship with him. Wow. Now, we could just stop the sermon right there and dwell on that. But we won't. I have more to say. All right? So the word as divinity, the word, secondly, as creator. John's gonna show us the creator. Verse three, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. This is a staggering claim to think about. Do you hear what John is saying? That Jesus is the creator of everything that exists. Now this correlates with Genesis 1. Remember, in Genesis 1, what was the instrument God used to create everything? What was the instrument he used? Did he wave a wand around and say, abracadabra? Did he roll up his sleeves and start, you know, building stuff with his hands? No, what did he do? He spoke and everything existed. The word used over and over again is the word said It's the most reoccurring word in Genesis 1. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. It's his word. What John is saying is the instrument of creation, the logos, the word is Jesus. Now, the apostle Paul says it like this in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him, Jesus, and for him. The most recent images from the Hubble Space Telescope suggest that there are at least two trillion galaxies in the observable universe. I mean, that's crazy. And each of these galaxies have billions of stars and planets. I mean, it just makes my brain hurt thinking about it. Jesus spoke them all into existence. 
That blows our mind to think about the vastness of the universe. Well, think about the vastness of the innerverse in our bodies. Do you know we have trillions and trillions of subatomic particles called quarks and leptons and probably other things that they haven't discovered yet? Jesus spoke them into existence. He designed them in our bodies. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, the Bible says. Hebrews tells us that he holds all things, universe, universe, all things, together through the power of his word. Staggering to think about. Now, it's also good for us to to just note here about the idea of Jesus' eternality as creator. Suppose a Muslim or Mormon or Jehovah's Witness person came with you and, and wanted to talk about this. They would disagree with what we just said. They would say Jesus was a created being. He, maybe they might say he was the first creation of God, but he's not eternal like God, which, by the way, is an ancient heresy called uh, Arianism from the 4th century is still very uh, active today in a number of religions. But the way that John says this in verse 3 kind of takes that idea off the table because John goes out of his way to say, if it was made, Jesus made it. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that if Jesus was a made thing, it would mean that Jesus made himself, which is impossible. See, everything that was made was made by Jesus and Jesus did not create himself, which makes Jesus an unmade thing and the only unmade thing in the universe is God. You following what I'm saying? And so we've seen Jesus as the word, divinity, creator. Now we wanna look at the implication of these two things for our lives. And this leads us to the third essential truth of the word as authority, as authority. Because the, we're going to go back to Greek philosophy for a second. You're like, oh, no, please don't. Yes, we're going to, for a little bit. The Logos, according to the Greek philosophers, was the divine reason behind everything that exists right, in creation, right? Which gave, in their minds, purpose for the universe, purpose for world affairs, purpose for politics, purpose for everything that happens, purpose for you and I, and purpose for our very lives. See, the question for the Greeks is, what is the Logos? What is the purpose? And so your goal, according to the philosophers, was to align yourself with the logos, with the divine reason, the purpose, so that you could live your life according to that design. Does that make sense? Now, the problem, of course, is there was no agreement, according to the Greek philosophers, of what that purpose was. Kind of a problem. You know, the Stoics had their version, the Epicureans had their version, right? The, the uh, Platonists had their version. None of them agreed with each other. It was subjective as to what that purpose was. And into that subjective abstraction, John pens the Logos. The Logos is Jesus. The reason for which you were designed, he says, the, th- the thing that gives your life purpose is not some subjective, abstract principle or universal force. It is an objective, personal, knowable, true being named Jesus Christ who created us, 
who designed us, who gives our life purpose, the one that we are to get to know and love and discover why we were made. Our logos is Jesus. And that makes sense too. If Jesus, if you buy into the proposition that Jesus made us and the world for his purpose, it means then that he has authority to tell us how we should live according to that design, right? How to go with the grain of God and not against the grain of his creation. Make sense? If you saw an iPhone being used as a doorstop, you ought to say something like, I don't think that's why it was created and designed. Steve Jobs would roll over in his grave if he saw you using an iPhone as a doorstop. Why? Because it's made for so much more than a doorstop. Now, as obvious as this seems, you realize the statement that I just made is maybe one of the most inflammatory statements that I can make in our culture today. Let me repeat what what I said. What, What I'm saying is that Jesus Christ has absolute authority over our lives because he is the designer of our lives. And so we ought to live accordingly to his design. That is an incredibly inflammatory statement in the world in which we live today. That goes against the grain of our culture that has worked really hard to abandon this idea, to undermine the notion of an absolute, of a divine logos, especially the notion of a personal God who will hold us accountable. See, the logos in our culture is lowercase l logoses, logoi. Everybody has their own logos. And the way you discover that is by looking inside of you and finding it. There's no overarching capital L logos. Look inside yourself. And what is true for me is true for you and it might not be true for, for somebody else. And no one's logos is superior to anybody else's. We're all equal. I define my own morality, my own identity, my own sexuality, my own purpose for my life. And that's, that's essentially where our culture is right now. But let me ask you a question. If you, if you generally kind of hold that to that perspective, let me ask you a question. Who made you? Who designed you? And if you have an answer to that question, do you believe that your maker has a right to speak into these things? Let me borrow an illustration from the late, great Tim Keller. Imagine if you were in a literature class and you're professor, your teacher, tells you to analyze this poem and get into a group with other people and all tell each other your opinion of what you think the poem means. And so one person says, well, I think this is what it means. Another person says, I think this is what it means. And the professor goes, oh, that's really great. And uh, no matter how like off the wall or crazy your perspective, your opinion might be, the professor's probably going to say, okay, great job. You know, everybody has their opinion because no one's there to tell them any different. Everybody has their own opinion. They're all equal in that sense. Who's the authority to say anyone's is different? And this is essentially modern secularism's thinking today. But what would happen if suddenly the author of that poem came into the classroom and said, I wrote the poem, here's what I meant by what I said. Well, discussion's over. (laughs) And you are either more or less aligned with the truth of what the author said, depending on what your opinion was. You, you can't say, well, no, 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 that's not what you meant. 
Why? Because the author has authority. The author has authority. John 1 says, the author of your life is Jesus, and so therefore he has the authority to define what is true. He is our divine logos, therefore he ought to have authority over the purpose of your life. And so let me ask you the question, what is your logos? What is your purpose? Why do you exist? Who or what has the authority to define that in your life? Who or what decides the best way for you to use your time and your resources? What is the logos that informs your morality, that decides how you're going to use your sexuality or your body? You might say, well, no one's going to tell me what to do with my body. No one's going to tell me how to live my life except me. And that's fine. You have a right to your opinion. But I want you to admit your real position. Your real position is that you believe you are your own logos. You are your own maker and creator. You are like the student sitting around the table giving an opinion about what the poem means and you have no right to tell anyone else whether their opinion is better or worse, whether they are right or wrong or something is moral or immoral, what is worthwhile or not worthwhile to pursue in life. And a world without a logos is a world without truth. You just have opinions. A world without a logos is a world without right and wrong. Instead, you just have what is efficient for those in power. A world without a logos is a world without real love. It's just chemical processes and neurons in your brain. A world without a logos is a world that has no meaning. To quote Macbeth, it is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And a world like that is an unbearable world. No one lives like that. Even the most staunch atheists don't live like that. Why? Because it's not true. To quote a modern poet, Switchfoot, we were meant to live for so much more (laughs) have we lost ourselves. What is your logos? What if when Jesus said, I am the living water, whoever drinks of me will never be thirsty again. What if when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though they die, will live. What if when Jesus was saying that, he was like the author coming into the classroom of our world? What if it's true? What if he's the true author of the universe, the author of our world affairs, the author of your life and mine? Now, listen, many of you are here and you would say, amen to that. I believe all of that. I'm with you, Nate. But let me ask you a question. Functionally, really, actually, is he the capital L logos, the reason, the truth for your life? Or do you have other competing logos in your life? Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's the pursuit of money or power. Maybe it's your reputation. That's really what's driving you. Is Jesus your logos? You might be living like that iPhone as a doorstop. 
It's functional, but you were created for so much more. So much more. You're missing out on the design by the author of your life. And until you give him the authority that he's due, you aren't really living your purpose. Until you give him your life, until you give him the right to speak into all areas of your life, you will not live according to your design. And friends, this isn't some idea out there. This is, this is something we can look into, we can read in the written word of God to discover that for our lives. Now, some of us hesitate in this, and I get it. It's a tug of war. It's a tug of war in myself to say, do I really want to give full authority to Logos, to Jesus in my life? I don't know if I want to do that. I kind of want to maintain control of authority in my life. And the reason for many of us is because there's a fear that he's going to exploit us, that his authority is going to exploit us. You might say, well, what if I really give him everything in my life and then I lose something I love? What if I really give him everything and I'm unhappy or he leads me somewhere I fear to tread? I don't want that in my life. But remember verse four. What does verse four say? It says, in him was life. True life. Abundant life. A life worth living. See, Jesus isn't here to exploit you. Jesus isn't trying to rip you off. He's not trying to make your life miserable. He's trying to give you true life, a, worth, a life worth living. And that's what I came to discover. Every time I'm in these tug of wars of, of ah, do I really want to give God control of this, this part of my life? Do I really want to give him authority here? Every time I've given him authority, I've never regretted it. Because what he's filled me with is true life, real life, real joy, sustainable meaning in my life. Doesn't mean it made it easier but it made it more worth living. Give him your life. He won't exploit you. And the reason I can say confidently that he will not exploit you is because Jesus came into this world and he didn't come like a dictator holding ultimate, ultimate power. He didn't come in exploiting his subjects. He could have, but he came humbly. He came as a poor teenager. He came like one of us and he subjected himself to the authorities and they exploited him. They stretched his arms out on a cross. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They mocked him. They spit on him and ultimately crucified him on a cross. Jesus gave up his power to serve us. Why? Because he loves us so. He lived among us. He loved us and ultimately he gave his life so that we could have true life. Give him your life. Make him the logos of your life.